1: I'm going to apologize in advance for any sneezing or coughing or sniffling or anything like that you hear. In addition to global climate change, I am dealing with uh, some serious allergies. Also man-caused, I'm certain. I'm just kidding, but Mother Nature's uh, got her hooks in me today. Nonetheless, I'm glad you could join me and I'm going to make it worth your while. I hope uh, you're tuned in today to revel in wrong think, to uh, take a little bit deeper look. At some of the principles that underlie the various issues and challenges we are facing. And also, I hope you come for some encouragement that not only are you up to the challenges ahead, but I believe that you are specifically and specially called to be the person to stand up and uh, and do the right thing and say the right thing and just be an example of truth and light. I know that's asking a lot. So, you know, if if you're headed for the exit, I I don't blame you, but... This is what we need. I've been thinking a lot about uh, just watching. I don't get too caught up in the whole, oh, no, Trump's indicted again. It's interesting from the standpoint of, you know, the the mask is coming off as far as what government has become and and what it has morphed into. and, And what we're seeing is not pretty and it's not very encouraging. And yet at the same time, here's where I'm torn. Maybe you can relate to this. I don't believe that First of all, I don't believe Trump is the political savior. I don't think that politically there is a person who is going to come and save us, you know, from the mess that has been created over generations of uh, people abusing power, uh, being irresponsible in their spending, committing, for instance, uh, future generations to a mountain of debt that they never had any say whatsoever in in whether or not they would uh, take on that debt and then have to pay it off. They were just committed. I mean, to me, that's, that's almost a form of intergenerational theft or slavery. Now, having said that, I know that's kind of a bleak outlook. I do think that uh, the the problem's going to be resolved. And, and if I can get just a little bit uh, less optimistic for a moment here, I think the problem is going to be solved when the system, as it currently exists, crumbles. When it absolutely falls apart and, and destroys itself which I think it's in the process of doing. Now, don't tell that to the people in power because they're convinced, oh, no, no, with this power and with the power to, uh, you know, to mint money, to, to print it out of thin air and to tell other people what to do, why we will be like gods on earth. They're going to be demigods at the very least. And uh, they think they're untouchable, <clears throat> but they're not. And they're they're going to learn that in a very hard and uh, and lasting way. And no, that's that's not a threat. That's just... That's acknowledging human history. I don't care how great the empire, I don't care how, you know, uh, untouchable the leaders seem to be. They're not the ones in charge. So it helps me to remember that. Now, having said that, I wanted to, to give you a nice insight. This is from Thomas L. Knapp. And uh, has to do with, with Donald Trump and the ongoing Trump indictments. You know, there are a lot of different opinions out there. I hear some, oh, well, you know, he's playing the long game. This is the the government pause, and actually he's been in control this whole time. I don't think I believe that, nor do I believe that, you know, hey, putting putting Trump in jail or or, uh, getting him out of politics is somehow going to save the republic. It's not. But as far as having to choose a side, I don't see a side at this point that I'm really comfortable in committing to other than the side of truth. And Thomas L. Knapp says disqualify Trump, maybe, but not by U-Case. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is self-enforcing. Stephen Calabrese writes at the Volk-Volk Conspiracy. It is the supreme law of the land binding on each of the 50 state secretaries of state and their subordinates who draw up primary or general election ballots. Now Calabresi believes former president Donald Trump has disqualified himself as a candidate for president per that the constitutional provision by per that constitutional provision by engaging in insurrection or rebellion against the United States and that those secretaries of state must therefore ban his name from upcoming ballots. Now when Calabresi calls the provision self-enforcing he means that no jury verdict is required. A secretary of state simply decides that Trump is an insurrectionist and that's that. It's over. He's done. He may not appear on your ballot and you may not vote for him. Now, Thomas says, look, unlike Mr. Calabrese, I'm not a professor of law, but I at least have three problems with his claims. First of all, Section 5 of the 14th Amendment makes it clear that no, it isn't self-enforcing. The Congress, it says, shall have power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. That's a good catch. Secondly, the section he cites forbids insurrectionists to hold, not to run for office. And thirdly, when the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, there was no such thing as ballot access under which secretaries of state had any say over which candidates Americans could vote for. In fact, he says until the 1880s, All American election ballots were effectively write-in ballots. At the polling place, the voter wrote out his choices or verbally dictated them to an election official if the voter himself couldn't write. Or simply cast a pre-printed ballot provided to him by his preferred political party. Yes, his. Women weren't allowed to vote until 1920. So Thomas Knapp says, unless we credit the ratifiers of the 14th Amendment with prophetic abilities and assume they didn't really mean it when they assigned enforcement of the insurrection provision to Congress and assume that such self-enforcement also magically bypasses the court system set up to adjudicate claims under both the Constitution and subordinate legislation, well, then Calabresi's argument, you know, simply doesn't hold water. Now, he says, personally, I'm in favor of returning to the right in ballot which would inherently require that the election of an insurrectionist be challenged in the courts after the votes are counted. He says, actually, okay, I'm I'm actually in favor of dissolving the government, but barring that, we should get the government out of the job of deciding who we may or may not vote for. And even accepting the legitimacy of the existing system, the only legal way to bar Trump or anyone else from the ballot is to prove to a court's satisfaction that he is indeed an insurrectionist which frankly doesn't seem like a very high bar, at least to Thomas L. Knapp. I do appreciate his insistence, though, on let's stick with what the Constitution actually says, what the 14th Amendment actually says. But more importantly, don't get caught up in the personalities. This is one of the great dangers of politics, and it has been, you know, all along. Politics, after all, is a popularity contest that is, you know, held on a semi-regular basis to decide who gets to do what to whom. And sadly, over the last, I don't know, the last few generations, those uh, decisions seem to be more and more rooted in who gets to do violence to whom, particularly the last few election cycles. So my advice, for what it's worth, (laughs) is don't put your hopes in personalities If we had statesmen, and by statesmen, I mean people who are more attached to truth, more committed to principle than they are to popularity, and that's what this is. Remember, it's a popularity contest. There might be some individuals you would trust to say, you know what, get in there, clean house, and make it happen. And again, I don't want to dash anybody's, you know, fantasy, well, Trump is going to come back and he's going to finish fixing stuff. Look, there there were a lot of good things he did in the time he was in the White House. There were also some really bad things that he did. First and foremost is leading out on the the lockdowns and uh, the vaccines, particularly what became the vaccine mandates. I'm sorry, but he needs to own that. That's a, that's a really egregious error. He should have fired certain officials that nonetheless uh, stayed in power. He had three years to do it and didn't do it. I know it's hindsight and it may sound like, gee, what are you, some kind of anti-Trumper. I'm just acknowledging the reality that whatever good he did, he did not drain the swamp. And in fact, when, when push came to shove, he found himself surrounded with swamp creatures as advisors who all participated in helping to take him down. We don't need a dictator. I know that right now things are starting to look kind of desperate for some folks, and you know, we're waiting for our man on horseback, the one who's gonna come in and with an iron fist set things right. You don't want to establish that precedent. And it's all about precedent. Whatever power you may think, if you're if you're a really diehard, you know, Trump is gonna come in and he's gonna fix this all and he's gonna be ruthless about it. If you allow him to use that kind of power against your presumed political enemies you have just conceded that it's it's okay as long as a person's in power they can use that to quash their political enemies and one day that enemy is going to be you because no matter how well intended your person is not always going to be in power okay thus endeth our civics lesson don't give power to the government that you would not want to see used against you by people who actually hate you Better still, break out of the political trance every so often and see how much of life doesn't involve politics. I think we give it way too much weight compared to how much value it actually adds to our lives. But for some reason, that's where our attention always seems to come back to.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. A quick thank
1: you to the sponsors who make this program possible. And they include College.org. Sorry. Also, uh, LifesavingFood.com, TMCPNation.com, and ClimbingUpward.com. By the way, I wanted to mention tomorrow I will have Brad Green joining me on the program. Brad is not only a friend... But he is also a little bit of a political oddity in that he is actually running for uh, the second congressional district in the state of Utah. This is the seat that uh, Chris Stewart, Congressman Chris Stewart, will be vacating. And uh, Brad is running as a libertarian, which, you know, it may not sound that incredible. Also, libertarians run all the time. But Utah is such a Republican-leaning state. It's, uh, it, I think Brad has a real shot at this. And he's a great guy. I've known him for quite some time Um I think I think they may actually have a chance of electing somebody who actually holds to his standards rather than just wets his finger and, mm, well, which way is the wind blowing? What's more advantageous, you know, to keeping me in power? Anyway, something to look forward to. Speaking of Utah, the FBI's uh, killing of Provo, Utah resident Craig Robertson. I've had a number of people ask me, what's, what's your take on this? And I haven't spent a lot of time talking about it, but it's... It's pretty disturbing from the standpoint of, well, it doesn't exactly pass the sniff test. Was this killing a message from a very highly politicized secret police force to anyone who might defy the the regime? Well, before you answer that question, I'd invite you to go to my show notes and click on the link that I provide from a, a Twitter or ex-user named Tim on Point, at Tim on Point. Tim sounds like... Uh, He's got some, some background either in law enforcement or perhaps military. I'm guessing law enforcement. But I want to share some of the observations that, that he has about why there was no need to kill this 75-year-old man in the way that it was done. And he starts by saying, look, there are a hundred different ways to do this that would not result in a loss of life. And he points out there was no need to drag his body out to the sidewalk to show the world. And they did. They drug it out there like a freaking trophy and let the media just kind of go nuts. Now, the body was covered, but I mean, again, it's the, look at the optics of this. Our trophy, we got him. We got our man. So, Tim says, pull yourself back from your political alignment if possible and consider the following. Number one, the FBI had Robertson under investigation for months. His stupid bluster on Facebook was known for months. An investigation, a real investigation would establish a pattern of life when he goes to church, when he goes to the store, etc. A real investigation would interview the people around him. This is first-grade detective work. If you determine the guy's a threat, you follow him to the store, casually wait outside, and wrap him up as he leaves with his hands full of groceries. People present these low-intensity opportunities every day. Number two, he asks, why the FBI? Why not local law enforcement? He says, I'm betting a large portion of local law enforcement is Mormon, the same church and church elders also. So, if the guy's such a threat, why not approach him through someone close? Again, why the FBI? Remember, this is the same FBI that ran a pre dawn tactical raid against Mark Hook and his family for protesting in front of an abortion clinic in Pennsylvania after local and state authorities decided to bring no charges. In other words, another demonstration of power a Catholic conservative that time, another object lesson from the Department of Justice. Number three, he says, before every tactical action, there should be a point-by-point risk evaluation. He says, this wasn't, I hope, an on-the-fly operation, because there wasn't a crime in progress. This was planned. What kind of risk is considered? and The basics are as followed. In other words, who's at risk? The agents, other supporting officers and technical staff, Craig Robertson, of course, and bystanders. When you breach a structure, when you breach a private house in the dark with breaching tools, weapons, and flash crashes, you instantly put the assault team and Craig at maximum risk. You put the neighbors at very high risk also, depending on what the house is built out of. Bullets go through walls. Even frangible rounds can go through walls and windows. When you plan an op, you're supposed to pick the lowest risk course of action that still provides success. This was the highest risk course of action, and unless the mission was a kill-capture rather than capture, then the mission was a failure also. Someone made that risk decision or they had specific orders to execute the mission one way only. Okay, that's pretty chilling. Number four, he asks, why did they wait so long? His crimes were known months ago. When you wait until the last minute, assuming that there's a real threat, you remove choices. You remove better courses of action. Number five, he asks, why pre-dawn? If you're breaching and entering after a surreptitious approach, there's a good chance you can wrap up your target before they blink their eyes. That's good tactics. And it looks like they woke him first. They woke him violently. People make bad decisions when they are scared awake. Why? Well, because they're still 90% asleep. If someone smashes through your door at maximum escalation, what's your first action? What's your first instinctive action? Because rational actions don't happen at O Dark Thirty. And a good cop knows this. Of course, bad cops know this also. If they screwed up their approach, a real possibility, it's the FBI's responsibility for what happens next. Number six, he says, I've seen hundreds of comments like, well, why didn't he comply? First, he says, read number five again about they woke him up. Second, how much time did they give him to comply? It takes time for a rational thought to work through, especially when you're mostly asleep, mostly immobile, and you have bright lights in your eyes because a tactical flashlight blinds a person completely. The chances of identifying yourself while someone is blind is zero. Then there's the flash crash deployment. Number seven, a flash crash, and they are talking about, I guess we used to call them flash bangs, but doesn't knock someone out. Or it might if it's really close. It doesn't make someone drop a weapon either. What it does is stuns them in their tracks for a brief moment. It dazzles them. A flash crash is also an offensive tool used to gain a brief advantage. A crash also makes someone completely incapable of complying. Number eight, he asks, what was the mission of an assault team? Why do we have assault teams, SWAT teams, etc. in American law enforcement? Think about this. It's a certain kind of guy who goes through the door for a certain type of mission. They like the action, the adrenaline. They're excited by the thought of putting someone down in the line of duty. Now, he says, don't get me wrong. They're well-trained and professional at what they do. He says, I was that guy. What makes it work is wise leadership, someone who knows when it's time to let the dogs run or grab them by the collar and pull them back. Wise leadership doesn't get enthralled by the action. They stand apart, especially with other Americans at risk. Wise leadership asks questions before going out the door. Number nine, was he really a threat? Okay, Tim on point says, my inclination says, no, he's an obese invalid who was also a caretaker of someone else. He had reason to live. Did his profile, built through the excellent months-long investigation with interviews of people who know him, his pattern of life, etc., really say that he was a threat? If yes, then why did they wait for months? But let's say he was for a moment. Number 10, was he an immediate threat? Was Craig Robertson an immediate threat to the President of the United States? We know the answer. It's no. Number 11, who ran the immediate post-action investigation? The FBI? He says, I'm worried about this. Number 12, what escalated this particular action beyond all the other daily threats against the president? Either this was different or the criteria changed. So which was it? Number 13, why this guy? MAGA, religious, white, loudmouth, very easy for over half the country to hate these days. There will be no Antifa riots over killing this citizen in his living room. Number 14, did the FBI have agents or informants engaging with him face to face? And if so, why did they wait? Possibilities, informants, informants that, hey, he has a relationship. This is the one that could improve the FBI's position, or even undercover agents. Number 15, did local law enforcement defer to the FBI? What were the conditions and the timeline? And finally, number 16, to go this far, they must have had his communications monitored. It would be stunning to think they went this far over Facebook posts alone. I mean, that's some pretty deep analysis. And the details will slowly come out. Right now, the spin is, well, you know, he, he pointed a revolver at them. Just know this. The FBI killed an American citizen in his own home when they absolutely didn't need to. And Tim says, last time I checked, this was a nonpartisan expectation of all law enforcement. So, yeah, it really doesn't pass the sniff test.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: I know that last segment, uh, some people are going to be like strongly disagreeing. If if you do, that's okay. I don't expect people to agree with me on a hundred percent. Even I don't expect them to agree with me on anything. Actually, I put out there what I hope is truthful, thought provoking, accurate, you know, credible information. But uh, I'm human. There's a lot that I've overlooked. I only know on some things, I only know what has come to me from other sources. I try to go to the source whenever I can, but, you know, I I will still give you the best I can. And and just know this, I will not deliberately try to mislead anybody. I'm always open to new information that could, you know, offer, you know, a better vantage point from which to survey the the whole situation. All right, having said that, got a great article here from uh, Jeff Thomas. Jeff is, uh, Jeff is I, I don't know if he's the founder or he's the, the, the proprietor of internationalman.com, but I sure like this guy's take on stuff. He is, uh, he's a solid, solid writer. And Jeff notes that we seem to be entering a period of American history where we are approaching the point where all crimes are those against the state. Meaning that uh, the state is the only one that has rights. The rest of us have no rights. And if that doesn't bother you, well, let's let's jump into Jeff's uh, article here and you'll understand why it should. He starts with a quote, do not encroach against others or their property. Now that principle is a simple one, he says, but that's the basis for all criminal law. In turn, criminal law is the basis for the common law, the legal system for English-speaking peoples and much of the rest of the world. The idea is a very simple one. If party A aggresses against party B, Party B is entitled under the law to restitution or compensation to be paid by party A to party B. Now that seems straightforward enough, right? But at some point along the way, two fundamental changes have been made that don't reflect the original principle. First, convicted offenders need to, started to be ordered by the court to pay the courts as punishment. Now, why is that a problem? Well, he says, well, the offense was not against the court. But the government of the day wanted to get in on the actions, so surely if a crime against a given party had been committed, the state was entitled to dip its beak, so to speak. Over time, fines payable to the state became the norm. And for those who couldn't pay the state, well, jail time. Now, along the way, another extension to the concept came into use. Victimless crimes. Increasingly, laws were passed by governments to make actions unlawful when there was no harm to an individual or his property. So, uh, for example, recently the state of Michigan passed law HB-4474 against hate crime, which means any perceived slight against another person, verbal or otherwise. The law recognizes such disparate slurs as those critical of gender identity, religion, race, sexual orientation, ethnicity, age, or even affiliation with a group. Incredibly, the law extends as far as the outlawing of unacceptable pronouns. The punishment is imprisonment of up to two years, a fine of $5,000 or both. Now, clearly, this is a victimless crime because no physical damage has taken place. And to exacerbate the logic, the fine is to be paid to the state rather than the injured party. Now, of course, any sensible person would be shaking his head in wonder at such a development when added to so many other changes in law that appear to be both ludicrous and often contrary to morality, rather, he might understandably comment they've gone mad. But when governments that are already habitually overreaching appear to be going mad, Jeff Thomas says it's a good idea to step back and calmly examine whether there might not be a method in the madness. So, for example, on the surface, quite a few governments, most notably First World Governments, have been passing a plethora of laws for which there is no victim, but for which the government is the recipient of damages. As if coincidentally, these same governments have been going in precisely the opposite direction with regard to crimes in which there is most definitely a victim. And he gives a few examples of these, for instance, looting of stores and other businesses or other places of business. Under the claim that the prisons are too full, governments have been determining that theft or looting that amounts to less than a given dollar amount is not prosecutable, essentially legalizing the crime of looting. How about destruction of property due to rioting? Rioters are habitually arrested, only to be released without being charged. Owners of the property that the rioters have burned or otherwise destroyed are no longer entitled to restitution or compensation as they once would have been. Then there's decriminalization of people taking up residence on public property. Tents may be pitched on sidewalks, in front of stores, discouraging residents from frequenting stores and destroying businesses. Concurrently, the homeless are assisted by the state in drug dependency. Then you have loss of bodily rights. Laws that call for forced vaccinations are blanket laws that allow a government the authority to control whatever goes into the body, whether medical or nutritional. And then there's systematic elimination of parental rights. Parental rights are being removed from parents to allow school authorities and medical professionals to dictate what they wish to physically do to children, free from prosecution. By the way, in addition, pedophilia is in the process of becoming decriminalized. And finally, civil asset forfeiture. Oof, sorry, this one one gets my blood pressure up. Police and other authorities have, since 2008, been legally allowed to stop people on foot or in a vehicle to conduct warrantless raids or to conduct warrantless raids on homes. If evidence is found that suggests the possibility of a crime, the authorities may seize any and all assets that they find, regardless of whether or not those assets may be connected to the possible crime. The authorities are not obligated to ever bring charges against the individual, making it impossible for him to be granted a hearing. This allows the authorities to permanently hold the assets taken or to dispose of them, the proceeds to be absorbed by the authority in question. Tell me that that doesn't at least sound like, boy, what? They do what? But legitimately, that's that's happening. So you may have other examples you could add to the list. Jeff Thomas says, so if we assume that the changes that are taking place are not madness, or just a collection of random but illogical changes in how the law is applied, what we begin to see here is indeed a method in what appears on the surface to be madness. And what we're seeing is that the original concept of law, that of protecting the individual from encroachment against himself or his property, is being eliminated. Now, on the other hand, laws that are victimless and laws that provide punishment by the state and call for penalties to be awarded to the state, they're very much on the rise. So what we have here is a growing trend. Jeff Thomas says if we follow it to its logical conclusion, that trend will result in laws that benefit the state being the only laws. Put another way, the individual has no rights. Only the state has rights. In the future, the only crimes will be crimes against the state. And he says, let that last bit sink in for a bit. Historically, freedom is lost when a nation becomes complacent enough to give it up willingly. Much of the first world is precisely at that tipping point right now. The question is whether those people who once enjoyed liberty will now push their heads in the sand and pretend that the most basic freedoms are not now being lost. Ouch. I don't know about you, but I felt that one. By the way, he ends with a quote from Socrates. Dictatorship naturally arises out of democracy and the most aggravated form of tyranny and slavery out of the most extreme liberty. Considering how long ago that truth was written, that's, uh, that tells you, you know, it's, it's definitely stood the test of time. So there's something to think about when you hear well the lightest crime is uh, who's the victim? That's that is something that you know we should be training ourselves to ask anytime. You don't have to go to law school to get your mind around the concept of there's a difference between mala uh, and say laws and mala prohibita laws. A law that is uh, mala and se is acknowledging that an act is evil on its face. Why? Because there's a victim. When someone engages in robbery, rape, theft, murder, fraud, arson, you can clearly point to a damaged party. You can say, okay, this is, here's the victim. But prohibita laws are just politicians' words on paper. You shall not change lanes unless you have signaled for at least three seconds or something along those lines. You shall not have chickens in your backyard. Where's the victim? And the victim normally, at least under, under you know, uh, sane conditions, it was understood the state itself cannot be the victim. But I think Jeff Thomas is on to something here. Right now, the state is not only casting itself as victim, but it's also collecting all of the, the penalties, the restitution. It all goes to the state. I know this may seem like a petty thing. You may think, well, you're just talking like a guy with a lead foot. But when you get a traffic violation, you get stopped for speeding. What is it that, that fixes your problem? What is it that makes you square and righteous with the state once again? I give it my money, exactly. And the victim, such as it were, well, once the victim has your money, then the victim stops threatening you with you know increasing fines and, and punishments.
0: How that doesn't sound like a racket to everybody is beyond me. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Got a
1: couple articles to share in this final segment, including the article of the day. We'll get to that in just a few moments Uh, since I was on the the topic of crime. And, uh, you know, we have this this uh, this romanticized myth of, well, you know, crime was very high in the Wild West where there was no law, there was no government, there was no infrastructure and bureaucracy to regulate the people and keep them under control. And I've heard this off and on throughout my life. I've also seen a couple of very good articles that really seem to make the case. No, it was it was actually a much more civilized place than, than we've been led to believe In fact, I have one of those articles in front of me right now. This is from uh, Stephen W. Carson, a piece that was published on intellectualtakeout.org. And he calls it the not-so-wild West. Reminding us in the 1952 movie, High Noon, Gary Cooper played a retired town marshal who decides that he must face off against a gang member who is returning to town. Now, the marshal's new bride is a pacifist and doesn't want him to face this villain. Also discouraging is that the town people will not stand by him. He must face the gang alone. And Stephen Carson says High Noon is a classic movie, simple, powerful, and wrong. In fact, the entire popular narrative of the Wild West is almost, perfect, almost purely rather, an invention of Hollywood, based on an assumption that many agree with. Since established governments were hundreds or thousands of miles away, the frontier, frontier towns, wagon trains, cattle drives, mining camps, and so forth, was effectively in a state of anarchy. Therefore, they were obviously in chaos, with men being gunned down in broad daylight on a regular basis in a lawless atmosphere. The only problem with this simple bit of political reasoning is that this isn't what actually happened. In fact, he says the period on the frontier from 1830 to 1900 was instead marked by protection of property rights and civil order. Pioneer settlers often didn't have official sanction to use the land they moved to, so land disputes occurred frequently. And the solution would be a land club that adopted its own constitution and bylaws, elected officers for the operation of the organization, established rules for adjudicating disputes, and established the procedure for the registration and protection of claims. One nonviolent sanction that these associations would use was a boycott of anyone who would not respect the claims of settlers. Now, to lose the ability to trade with one's neighbors on the frontier was to be put in a very precarious position indeed. And these associations were highly effective. Historian Frederick Jackson Turner extolled them for demonstrating the power of the newly arrived pioneers to join together for a common end without the intervention of governmental institutions. More violent was the private enforcement among cowboys. Cattlemen's associations were created quite quickly after cattle drives started in the West. Those who entailed the those, these entailed rather the hiring of stock detectives who would ensure that everyone only possessed the cattle that he himself owned, and none others. So one example is Bill, who became Montana's first stock detective. He became a hired defender of property rights, and he executed his assignments as well as his quarry with thoroughness and dispatch. Now, not all of this organization occurred after arrival on the frontier. Folks heading to the frontier on wagon trains knew they would eventually pass beyond the pale of the law, so they would organize themselves ahead of time. They wrote up constitutions before setting out, which included things like organization of jury trials, regulation of Sabbath breaking, gambling and intoxication, and penalties for failing to perform chores, especially guard duty. In one case, despite arbitration arrangements being in place, a wagon train could not reach an agreement with one of its members who wouldn't do chores. And they concluded the best thing we could do was to buy him out and let him go, which we accordingly did by paying him $100. He shouldered his gun, carpet bag, and blanket and took the track to the prairie without saying goodbye to one of us. So the truth of what happened on the frontier is not just completely different from Hollywood Westerns, it's actually rather encouraging. Set a bunch of Americans in a wilderness and they don't descend into the Lord of Flies type chaos. Instead, they organize, establish justice, and start building civilization. By the way, this is consistent with an article that I read years ago. And I've shared it on the show before. I, I'd have to do some pretty deep searching to find it. But it was an article that, that brought about, I think it was from a first-hand view of an actual lawman. He was a marshal during those years, you know, leading right up to to the uh, early 1900s. And something he pointed out was, he says, you know, you didn't have a bunch of lawlessness and people, you know, going out there and just, you know, taking vengeance on each other. But he says, where there were no courts to enforce disputes, it was in your interest, if you found yourself crosswise with somebody else, to go and settle that dispute before it came to violence. If you offended somebody or you had... uh, cheated someone or otherwise you know had, had done wrong to somebody it was on you to go and make it right and people did not because it was every man for himself but because that was just necessary to help keep the peace but then we started outsourcing everything to government which I'm not convinced was uh, I don't know that it was necessarily a, a good thing in in the sense that it's it's brought us it's brought us some civilization yes definitely it's also brought us a whole lot of garbage that we're still dealing with on a on a pretty regular basis so that said let's move on to the article of the day this is uh, this is a great article from uh, the Brownstone Institute website I think it's the best advice you're going to hear all day don't assume that experts know something that you do not this is written by Eric Hussey and you know. We need to be reminded of this because it was the experts who shepherded us into all the travails that we saw during the COVID pandemic. It was experts that we were expected to set aside our own understanding and listen to them and put on the masks and stay six feet away from each other and take the jab and don't talk back and don't do your own research. So Eric Hussey says it's about brains, really. People who consider themselves public health experts and no doubt those who consider themselves climate change experts don't consider other people's brains as being on a par with theirs. And that opens a wide door to those who consider themselves experts. If you are an expert and have a superior brain, there's no reason to have any compunction about inserting your decision-making into the lives of others, the benighted lessers, and seizing the rights of others, including the foundational rights to decide for oneself what is best for you and to express those decisions openly. Now, weirdly, he says, we've lived through about three years of people a lot of people agreeing with the experts. That is the message back to the experts is essentially you're right. Our brains are not up to the level of yours. So we'll happily allow you to make all decisions for us. We willingly submit. It's been the human equivalent of that skinny glass bodied bird with the top hat who just nods occasionally dipping its beak into the water in the glass. It nods all day. It nods all night and it just keeps on nodding. Now, part of that acquiescence can be attributed to a constant drumbeat suggesting that this group of experts actually knows the truth. The science. Rap unwavering arrogance openly backed by members of the same acceptably educated in-group, projecting their own self-anointing in-group bonding arrogance into the issue with a heavy blanket of you're going to die if you don't listen. And it's understandable that normal people are cowed. Still, though, he says it's about brains. He says, an analogy I landed on to illustrate some of what bothers me in all this is the picture of the computer systems that link computers through servers to create supercomputers. We all use computer systems that link computers through servers to create supercomputers. Think about search engines. Those search engines that answer your question in 0.0056 seconds do that thorough combined processing ability on server farms. Now, he says in his state, some of those server farms are located near Columbia River dams, maybe to take advantage of unlimited power. So why don't we apply the same computer server linking thought process to come up with a crude measure for human information processing? After all, many, if not most tangible devices that have improved life for humans have had more than one parent involved. The Wright brothers were the first to demonstrate powered flight, and they deserve every bit of credit for that. They were, however, not the inventors of the aerilon that makes that makes a uh, modern flight possible. The wing warping worked for the Wright flyer, maybe not so much for a 747. Some human brains combined with other human brains and a lot of persistence, experimentation, and hard work, and voila, we have flight as we know it. Add in a lot more human brains cooperating, and the 747 becomes feasible. It's more than a little like you accessing Google's server farm from your computer. However, in the majority of the vast majority of cases, production of tangible inventions involves a good deal more personal contact between competing individuals, cooperating individuals rather, than does accessing Google, which brings up another problem thrust upon us by the current crop of arrogant experts. We're not supposed to talk up close and personal with each other. In fact, we're not supposed to travel to talk with each other. Could that be because we might combine our thought processes and learn something uncomfortable to or about the experts? There's more to this, but um, I'll leave it for you to discover for yourself. Again, this is uh, an article from the, the Brownstone Institute. You'll find it linked in my show notes on the Brian Hyde show.com Strongly recommend this one as, uh, as a great way to reclaim your mental autonomy. By the way, Richard Feynman winner of the 1965 Nobel Prize in physics, said science is the belief in the ignorance of the experts. And Eric Hussey says it's time to follow Feynman. Forget following arrogant clowns defining themselves as the science. Like I said, I think this is the best advice you're going to get all day.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.